Welcome back to another episode of Ramiumptum Ruminations. My name is Scott and I'm the host. Today's episode is called No Man Knows My History Review Part 3 Welcome back to another episode of Ramiumptum Ruminations. This one is a continuation of a chat that I had with Julia from Analyzing Mormonism, where we have been discussing the book No Man Knows My History by Fawn Brody. If you missed part one and part two, go back, listen to those ones. They're excellent. We briefly introduced Julia in the in part one of this series. Um, I think that one was back in April, June for part two. These are kind of spread out. I apologize for that, but you know, life happens. So today we're getting back together. I'm welcoming Julia back onto the show. Julia, thank you for coming back on and giving me your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. So today we're getting back together. We're going to cover the third section that um, we had decided to break the book up into four sections. Section three covers chapters 15, clear through chapters 21, um, more or less pages 200 to 300. This section was interesting. It covered some some of the mundane things, some of the military things, but then it had some really fascinating chapters. I think the latter part of this discussion, I think, is going to be a lot more interesting than the front end of this discussion, at least for me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's been a minute since we've had you back on. Welcome back to the show. Was there is there anything going on on your podcast or anything that you wanted to promote? I know that you have been putting out more uh, regular episodes. Yeah, so we're moving. So I haven't had one in the, in a week or so. But yeah, I've, I've been deconstructing the the first vision of Joseph Smith and just the sources surrounding that and each of the 10 different accounts. And yeah, just researching all that stuff. Fascinating. The thing the thing I like about Julia's content, and this is for the listeners, so go check out her stuff is she she dives deep into the actual substance of all of these subjects. And she'll read and go through the actual writings and the actual content that is being discussed and not just not just summarizing it but she will give you firsthand readings of these sources which is fascinating okay that that was great that was a great description (laughs) (laughs) so let's jump into this we've got a lot of content to cover and i'd like to get through it you know when uh, as succinctly as possible so let's kick it off with chapter 15 this one was called the valley of god in this chapter brody's kind of setting the stage for the saints to get kicked out of far west um she's describing all of the context around the the Danites getting set up, threatening ex-members of the church, um, Sidney Rigdon kind of expelling people from the area, uh, threatening them. It was kind of showing some of the hostile behavior of the members leading up to them getting kicked out of Far West. And the, the biggest takeaway from a lot of these chapters and the persecution around the early saints was that it, it went both ways. Whether or not the the early Mormon settlers were the original instigators, they did give it back. And that's kind of what Brody is setting up here. Someone had mentioned to me on my TikTok that Fawn Brody um, only says negative things about the saints and Joseph. And I think whenever she can, she does say positive things. It's not just all negative. And she'll give, yeah, she'll give props wherever they, wherever they, um, you know, come in, which I just appreciated. I mean, it's it's a biography of Joseph Smith, and I I get the feeling that what she's portraying, specifically in this chapter, was kind of some of the people around Joseph Smith kind of getting out of hand right. around him, where he like lost control of them. Um, specifically, what was it, uh, Samson Arvard? This was page two fourteen, I think. The guy that was setting up the Danites. Wait, so she has a sentence in here. Can I read something really quick? Go ahead. Mm-hmm. So when she's discussing about, Av- how do you say his name? Avard? Avard? Of, I just, in my head, I always said Avard. Samson Avard. Okay, yeah. So in on page 215, down near the bottom, 
She says, in discussing the history, she says, but it is clear that these were more of the prophet's characteristic efforts to write his own history as he wished it had been lived and not as it really happened. And I feel that not just with this specific character, but just in so much of church history, like the first vision or the the priesthood being restored, he always kind of made it out or even his magic worldview. He kind of weeds that out of his later histories. And like this is how he wanted it to be, not actually how it was. Yeah, she she makes a real similar point in chapter twenty about that, and it's it's almost point for point with the same thing where she's saying that as he's sitting down to write his biography when they're in Nauvoo later, that he's narrating it as if he were the same person he was in Nauvoo the whole time. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fascinating that even even clear back when they're in Far West, they're altering some of the historical events. On page 209, Lyman White, so this was right off of the, the last episode that we discussed for those that, that missed it. We talked about the Kirtland Safety Society and them, um, kind of all of their failures around Kirtland that drove them back to Far West, where they had these prophecies of Adam on Diamond, where this was where um, the second coming was going to happen. And this was where Adam and Eve were expelled from the Garden of Eden. And they described, Brody described the altar where Adam made sacrifices. And there was even a scene in this chapter where they talked about somebody standing on that altar to proclaim something to to the people, which gave me the impression that it was a sizable altar for you to be able to stand on it. Oh, yeah, yeah. But on page 209, Lyman... Lyman White was describing the events of the Kirtland Safety Society and all of these failures as God culling the herd in an effort to bring the prophet and the members back to Zion. And, and that was kind of the, the feeling around this return to Adam on Diamond. Then from there, they start establishing the Danites with Avard that we had mentioned. There were early meetings and there were some dissenters from that. And this is on page 214. There were some early dissenters of the Danites. So Joseph Smith and, and Sidney Rigdon kind of left Avard kind of on his own to run the band of his own devices. This is what uh, Brody said. John Coral, who attended two early Danite meetings, came away convinced of Avard's villainy. He communicated his shock protest to Rigdon only to be advised to stay away from future meetings. A good many other Mormons who became Danites later described Avard's machinery. Their stories of oaths, passwords, and secret signs are fragmentary, but consistent. I thought it was fascinating because I think there's some some interesting parallels that you could draw there to the um, secret combinations that are described in the Book of Mormon. Yeah, for sure. The only other main thing I took from this particular chapter was by this point, and this is in 1838, um, of the 11 witnesses of the Book of Mormon, only Joseph Smith Sr., and his brothers were were left as members of the church. Nobody else was a member of the church. I think some of them had passed away, but at this point, there was only Joseph Smith and his brothers. Yeah, I don't think that's something we talk about enough in the church because, like, people always say, you know, we have these witnesses, and they never recounted, but not what they did after. But like, they also were witnesses for other things, like other religions, like Strang. I think that was one that they a lot of them followed. And I think Joseph's family even all leaves the Mormon church and joins another church. So in this time, there were people that were starting to get estranged, to specifically David Whitmer and Oliver Cowdery. They were still living in Far West, but they were no longer associated with the leadership. They were no longer in positions of power. And you have the Danites and Sidney Rigdon forcing them from Far West with the threat of murder and stealing all of their property. They just wanted to rid the place of anybody that was not a part of the organization. To me, in chapter 15, Brody is setting up the lead up to Liberty Jail and their expulsion from Missouri. But she's pointing out to, in this chapter and in the next chapter, she's pointing to the rhetoric that the members of the church, Sidney Rigdon, the Danites, that they were saying that would incite these riots and these that would incite the Gentiles, and these are air quotes, <laughs> to come up against them. Um, <clears throat> and, and these threats to ex-members of the church, they were, they were published in the Liberty Press, if I'm not mistaken. 
And that's uh, Church History, Volume Two, page one fifty-seven and one to one sixty-five. And these were these were threats that they were making to anybody that was not associated with the church but living in Zion. I think you're much better at looking at the overall picture of these chapters. I like to look at the tiny details. Oh no, you're good. Tiny details are great. One thing that I like is the uh, people don't realize that Mormon Mormon Mormonism is so tied to Adam and Eve, like. You, you can't you can't move away from that. And he, him just talking about this is this is the location where Adam had his altar, where Eve was. This is where you know Christ is going to come to Adam on Diamond. It's just all over the scriptures and all over church history. I don't know. So evolution in my mind, evolution and Mormonism do not mix at all. <laughs> I mean, as as a believer, you know, I'll put my believing hat back on. I tried to make those compatible, but they have implications on almost every aspect of, of faith and it's, and they're not good implications. I mean, once you make a concession that, that evolution existed, then you have to explain, you know, what about all these billions of humans that existed before Adam and Eve. Right. Right. And the Denisovans and the Neanderthal. Mm -hmm. There's so many things that you would have to account for just to explain how Adam and Eve were our fathers or the you know mother and father of all the human race. And, and that's just one aspect of it. But there's so much else that just it just doesn't click nicely. Yeah. And Joseph's revelation about the Adamic language and how that's the pure language of God and Adam. And he's like revealing that. Yeah. You just can't get away from Adam and Eve. It's, it's clear that they held a literalist interpretation of everything that was in the scriptures. Yes. When you study these things, I think, and and I'll talk about this a little bit later. I think in chapter, it was chapter twenty. I think um, in chapter twenty, they, they talk. Uh, Brody talks a little bit about some of these claims about the ancient past, and uh, in in my notes, we'll get there in a, in a little bit. But in my notes, I wrote I wrote some of these thoughts down too. Where whether you're a believer or a non-believer, it's hard to hold him in as high esteem or as having a, as much authority on these positions with all that we know today about history. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there's some really uncomfortable implications there. Chapter 16 was called The Alcoran and the Sword. This was a quote um, from a, a speech that Joseph Smith gave um, around the time um, leading up to Hans Mill Massacre. It's an interesting discourse that he gave, and it kind of shows how the rhetoric of their faith had transitioned at this time, and it was escalating they seemed to believe that God was on their side and was going to protect them from anything that came their way. So they're, they're in far West. There's a lot of conflict going on between the people of Missouri and the saints. Ponsville massacre is about to happen. And Joseph Smith, after Sidney Rigdon had given like a heated, you know, passionate speech, the rhetoric, and, and I'll read this from what Joseph Smith said to kind of give a feel for what they were talking about. And this is what, this is what Joseph Smith is cited as having said by George Hinkle and James B. Turner. And that can be found in uh, Correspondence and Orders, pages 125 to 129 and 139 to 40, and Mormonism Unveiled, pages uh, 73 to 74. Joseph Smith says here, If the people will let us alone, he cried, we will preach the gospel in peace. But if they come on us to molest us, we will establish our religion by the sword. We will trample down our enemies and make it one gore of blood from the Rocky Mountains to the Atlantic Ocean. I will be this generation a second Muhammad whose motto in treating for peace was Al-Koran or the sword. So it shall eventually be with us, Joseph Smith or the sword. When I was taught these events and, and all the stuff um, about how the early saints were persecuted, this sort of rhetoric was never covered. Whether they were justified in, in being upset and having, and I think honestly, they probably were very justified with some of the things that were done to them, but they, they weren't, meek in this they were fighting back they were um, agitating their oppressors and honestly doing what they could to defend themselves yeah it's it's a lot more complicated than what i was originally led, led to believe there's a quote on the next page and i i don't know if it's joseph um, where he says the last man has run away from far west that is going to and he says the next man who starts shall be pursued and brought back dead or alive and i thought that was really interesting that they don't want anyone leaving, any more people leaving far west. 
well, they had been kicking out anybody that was an ex-member of the church. And I think they were kicking out anybody that wasn't a believer. They were trying to establish it as just four members of the church. Right. That just, it just sort of like, it felt like kind of, I think the FLDS kind of has that feel like you can't leave. And yeah, it just sort of felt like that. Like they're having, a, he has a tight grip over the saints. All of these things, they eventually lead to the Hansville massacre, um, the order from Governor Boggs to exterminate the Mormons. Chapter 16 covered a lot of those events. And it basically, outside of the rhetoric from Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon's preaching here, I, I was fairly familiar with most of everything else that happened. I thought it was interesting that he, is he saying that he has Laban's sword from Nephi? And on page 237. Wrote one Mormon in a letter on October 28th. He has the sword that Nephi took from Laban. I thought that was really interesting. <laughs> Brother Winchester, letter written serially between September 6th and November 19th, 1838. Copied into the journal history under the date November 19th. And it, yeah, it says, Now Father wrote one Mormon in a letter on October 28th. Come to Zion and fight for the religion of Jesus. Many a hoary head is in, engaged here. The prophet goes out to the battle as in days of old. He has the sword that Nephi took from Laban. Is not this marvelous? Yeah, I thought that was super interesting. And what a what a powerful thing for Joseph to use for these men. For, for all of the other bad things <laughs> that Joseph Smith did that, that you know got him into trouble, I don't really think that they did much wrong in Far West. And so it's it's kind of a sad time in church history. I remember a couple of weeks ago you were you had RFM on talking about under the banner of heaven, and I think they have that scene of Hans Mill, and it was really really hard to watch. Yeah, it was brutal. It was interesting because they were making the connection that you had just made a moment ago with the FLDS Church, where they were saying that a lot of this rhetoric, a lot of the way the early church behaved, um, was influencing the. Lafferty's in Under the Banner of Heaven. Yeah. And that's what influences the decision-making process of the FLDS church today, where they're they're trying their best to emulate the this early version of Mormonism. So chapter 17 is the ordeal at Liberty Jail. And there was there was a couple of things that I thought really fascinating about this. So they had tried to convict Joseph Smith of treason, but they didn't have enough evidence on it. And so they just kind of held him apparently without without any sort of conviction. They were just holding him. At least that's what I gathered from from what I read. Well, yeah, doesn't he say he reads off? What does it say? Many false and pernicious things which had been ignorant as well as innocent. Or, or that, That's on page 246. But I love that she says, Then oddly, he chose to deny the ubiquitous rumor of polygamy, though it had not been mentioned in the Richmond trial. I just thought that was super interesting. <laughs> That is interesting. Well, she also later mentioned, and this is this is in this chapter, but near the end, he wrote while he's in Liberty Jail, he wrote a cryptic letter to uh, Prescindia Huntington Buell. This letter is thought to be kind of the early formulation of the theology around plural marriage. We're kind of jumping around in this chapter, but that was page 253. It's in Appendix C in this book. So we'll get to that down the road as we continue through this. But uh, what Brody says here was the queenly young Prescindia Huntington Buell, whose husband had turned against the church, paid him a visit in jail in February. When she came a second time in March and was turned away by the jailer, he wrote her a cryptic and tender letter in which he hinted of a great plan that he would soon unfold to his most faithful followers. Wait, what year is this again? Is this 38? I believe it's 38. Okay. Also, interestingly, when Joseph's brother, William, heard about everything going on with Liberty Jail, he, according to Brigham Young, wanted Joseph Smith hung and he wanted him dead. There's some previous contention between Joseph Smith and his brother, William, and it kind of came to a head here, according to Brigham Young, that William declared he wanted his brother dead because of all of this. Yeah, I was going to mention that too, that that uh, when, as a member of the church, as an active member, I never heard anything negative from Joseph's siblings towards him. But she talks about it here and even throughout these chapters. And they remind me a lot of Laban, Laman and Lemuel and Joseph's sort of Nephi, the Nephi character. I just had no idea that his family, like he wanted his brother hung years ago. Uh, that's strong language for his brother to be using. 
One of the other interesting things, and this is a story that I hadn't been told or that I was unfamiliar with, but this is on page 251. Someone came to the prison and poisoned all of the tea and the coffee that they were giving to the prisoners. And there was only one person among them that didn't get sick because he didn't drink tea or coffee. (laughs) And this was a gentleman by the name of McRae. But Joseph Smith, Sidney Rigdon, all of the other leaders of the church that were there in prison they all got sick because they were drinking tea and coffee. And I, it just, it's one of those stories that's just really ironic, especially because, I mean, on one hand, you know, it wasn't a solidified commandment, but you did have, you did have guys like Sidney Rigdon who were pushing it to be a commandment. And even Sidney Rigdon is getting sick because he's drinking the poison tea and coffee. <laughs> what did I tell this story of Rigdon, where he's fighting Joseph? When he's fighting, that might have been chapter 16. Oh, okay. When they were having fun, or he was like telling him to wrestle. And yeah, and he like put him in his place. I just had never heard that story before. And he, he like wrestles him and puts Rigdon in his place. I just, I, I, like, that's a good story. It's like, why didn't we hear this? I know. It's a great story. And it like encourages, you know, having fun and, and you know, even when times are tough to not take things too seriously. I think I thought it was a great story too. Yeah, it was great. One of Brody's points that she was making in this chapter, at least what it felt like as I was reading it, is she was she was describing a transition in Joseph's rhetoric from the time of Liberty Jail forward that he no longer was giving big revelations. He was no longer saying, you know, thus saith the Lord. And any big um, theological shift or deep doctrine, if you will was not put out for the general public, but it was reserved for the select few that were his most faithful followers. She described, and and this was probably conjecture on her part, but she was saying, you know, he took time to meditate while he's there. I mean, obviously he's going to be thinking and, you know, he's, he's there for months and months. So, you know, there's going to be some probably self-reflection, but without any direct words, we can't say one way or another, but she's saying that he meditated and formulated a different way to approach his preaching, which is entirely possible. Yeah, I think she noticed she I think she pointed that out earlier in the book, too, where she gives the number of revelations he'd had received. And then and then it kind of falls off afterwards. She said after Zion's camp, there was like four more instances instances where he said, thus saith the Lord. Yeah, I thought that was super interesting. So chapter 18, this one was Nauvoo. And this one, Brody's kind of establishing kind of the setting and um, the feeling of Nauvoo. She's she's kind of setting up things to happen down the road while in Nauvoo. I thought the chapter was interesting. There was only a couple of, of the key takeaways for me. She talked about John C. Bennett um, taking over as Joseph Smith's like right-hand man because during their time in Liberty Jail, Sidney Ridden got very sick and he remained ill for a long while while they're in Nauvoo. And so John C. Bennett kind of steps in and takes over as second in command. But there was there was like a quote, and this is on page 259, in the Chicago Democrat, and this is in March 25th of 1840, um, the Chicago De- Democrat is describing uh, the Mormons, the early saints, and describing the way that they have interacted with uh, their time in Missouri. So they have fled Missouri, and they're now in Nauvoo, and this is what the Chicago Democrat says is, we will not go so far as to call the, Mor- the Mormons martyr mongers, but we believe they are men of sufficient sagacity to profit by anything in the shape of persecution. The Mormons have greatly profited by their persecution in Missouri. Let Illinois repeat the bloody tragedies of Missouri and one or two other states follow. And the Mormon religion will not only be known throughout our land, but will be very extensively embraced. Wow. So I'm I'm reading that and I'm like, wow, this guy is a prophet. <laughs> <laughs> he he foretold the future here. He has said exactly what's going to happen and he said exactly the way the world is going to view Mormons in the future. <laughs> yeah. So I thought that was interesting. And so the the they move into Nauvoo and there's lots of plans to set up the city, you know, turn it into they're doing the big big square sections of of the city like they did um out in far west there's plans to do a harbor and to turn it into this big booming town one thing that i that i thought was 
of note in Nauvoo that I did not know before was there actually was a brothel in the town. Oh, yeah. <laughs> in in uh, in Nauvoo. Apparently, it was just like a block away from the temple, too. They disguised it as a general store. There wasn't a lot of details on on the actual brothel. And I did a fair amount of like searching to find as much as I could on this, but did not find much. Um, but the only known, the only patron that she mentions that Brody mentions was John C. Bennett. It was shut down because the town, you know, the, the saints as a whole did not want that to be part of their town. Another part of church history that I find interesting is that several years down the road, the church is still, or was still, I can't remember who the prophet was. Harold B. Lee. And in the book, um, Tabernacles of Clay, I think the author goes through this, how the church did own brothels and things like that still just to bring in tithing or just to bring in more funds, I mean. And so they would own these buildings and lease them out. And then they would just like not, like kind of turn the blind eye on what was going on in their in their buildings that they owned, which I thought was really interesting. Well, it's, I mean, honestly, that's not too much different than City Creek, you know, if there's any alcohol being sold there. And and that's true, too. Yeah. People at the very beginning. Um, so the chapter is called Nauvoo and people like she points out this. She says that Joseph says that Nauvoo it, in Hebrew means beautiful place. And then she claims that the word was not listed in their Hebrew dictionary. So it, he just makes up this word. However, I did. I thought that was really interesting. <laughs> so I did digging. But Nauvoo actually is in a different form. It is in Hebrew. It does mean something similar to beautiful place. So so she does get that wrong. Interesting. Um, so a lot of people, if you even if you type it up in Google, Fair Mormon, I think it's right on top of it. Like, oh, she's wrong. But historians, Mormon active member Mormon historians do read this book. They understand she's biased, yes. But like overall, she is correct in, in her her assessments or her history that she gives. That was just one thing that I noticed. That's a great point is that uh, Fair Mormon or Fair Latter-day Saints, they have a full section on No Man Knows My History. Oh, wow. And they go chapter by chapter debunking as much as they can on the claims that um, that she makes. Do they do they reference, do you know, do they reference Hugh Nibley's No Ma'am, That's Not History? Is that referenced anywhere? I don't see any. So I'm pulling it up right now as we're talking. I don't see any. Because my understanding, that's what I want to read after we're done with this, is read that from Hugh Nibley. From what, what I understand is that he wrote that kind of, kind of mudslinging on her character rather than the book itself and the claim she's making. So I'm interested to see what that's about. Because we had just mentioned it. I just wanted to see if her fair Latter-day Saints said anything about the brothel. On chapter 18, they only had two points. The one point was about the, the supposed fail healings that she, that she mentioned early on in this chapter. Um, and then they, the other thing in chapter 18 that they mentioned is the brothel. And so um, their response to it is, is this, and I'll quote them. It says, although there was a brothel that was run by John C. Bennett, the Mormons eventually pushed the whole thing into a ravine. Brody does not disclose the opposition of Joseph and the Mormons to the brothel as described in her cited sources. They're right in saying that she didn't describe it a ton because she did not give it very much, very much space in this chapter. But she did say that that it was the Mormons that that shut it down. It wasn't like an outside force. Mm -hmm. This this whole concept, I think, is is fascinating because I think the idea of Joseph Smith and the leaders of the church um, shutting down a brothel only to start plural marriages. <laughs> I want to be delicate with how I say this. Because I recognize that there's trauma on both of these unhealthy systems. I think an argument can be made that they went from one unhealthy system, prostitution, where men are empowered over women, to another unhealthy system, polygamy, where men are also empowered over women. And I think an argument can be made that more harm overall was done by polygamy than the brothel in Nauvoo. Oh, uh, that's super. That's weird to hear you say that, but I actually think you might be correct. And I've been listening to a lot of FLDS things lately and them talking about plural marriage and how unhealthy that is. I think that, I think you might be correct. <laughs> Man, that's heavy. <laughs> oh, wait, hang on. There was a part about the temple. Hang on. Let me see what my notes are. Uh, I think the temple is chapter 19. Am I, I, I mean, it, there's still something in the Nauvoo part. 
where they're talking about the money. Um, they worked on the temple, although their pay was uncertain. I guess the laborers who were working on the temple was interesting to me. Um, people who, it says, um, skilled craftsmen who lacked employment worked on the temple, although their pay was uncertain and consisted of donated food and clothing. Like I, And then they had to give a, each a tenth day of working. Well, they in the next chapter, in chapter 19, they go into um, the connections between masonry and the temple rituals. I just think it's really funny. They On page 271... So I didn't know that Joseph was a dog person until I read this book. And I didn't know that he had any kind of horse. And he has a Charlie horse. <laughs> um, it's a magnificent black stallion is what she says. And I just I just thought that was an interesting point and really funny that he would name him Charlie. We glossed over this or was this the story of him getting captured at, or him escaping Liberty Jail? We didn't touch on this at all. They bought, I think, this horse from the sheriff that was escorting them. Am I, am I mixing up the horse? Wait, one thing, I don't think she talks about it here, but when maybe she does, but when he retrieved the gold plates in the beginning, he had to be dressed in and all in black. He had to have a black horse. He had to have a black candle, black everything in order to retrieve the plates. But I guess that was a different horse. That might've been somebody else's. I'm trying to think, cause there was, there was a, a, a brief story and it got maybe a paragraph, maybe two paragraphs. When they're trying to acquit him of everything and kind of get him out of prison, he he buys the horse from the sheriff. And I think that might be the horse that we're talking about. Oh, okay. That's cool. 255. As it turned out, Joseph, Joseph did not need a rescue party. On the way to Boone County, Hiram bought a jug of whiskey sweetened with honey. To this proprietary offering, Joseph added a bribe of $800. It was enough. The sheriff ob- obligingly sold them several of the horses and about 25 miles from at about 25 miles from Adam on Diamond, obviously close to far west, the guard got drunk and went conveniently to sleep. Joseph mounted a fine dark chestnut stallion, and the other prisoners close behind him pounded up the road toward his old settlement, where he joined the last remnant of the Mormons who were headed for Mississippi. So it says a dark chestnut stallion. I, I don't know if it's the same horse as Charlie. Well, they, it says they bought several, so I don't know, maybe Charlie's in the mix there. But that's neat. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was kind of a, a cool little yeah, story. Yeah, it reminds me of the Book of Mormon stories where they get them drunk a lot and then they fall asleep. And Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, honestly, I think that's a cool little story. Yeah, it is a cool story. Doesn't detract from faith no, at all. And I'm sad that so many of these stories, I thought, well, this could have, this is interesting, first of all. Also, it's faith promoting. Why am I not hearing about these? Exactly. So, so let's jump ahead. This is uh, going on to chapter 19. This one is called Mysteries of the Kingdom. And in this one, Brody, the, the main point of this was to highlight the fact that Joseph Smith became a member of the Masonic Lodge and shortly thereafter established the um, endowment ceremony in the Mormon faith. And this is this was the the quote that I had mentioned earlier. I think when we were discussing in chapter sixteen, Joseph Smith, chapter fifteen or sixteen, about um, writing history and and changing it to alter the future. Yeah, yeah. The first sentence is that what you mean? Yeah, Brody starts starts this chapter off in nineteen with such a beautiful line. She says, "A man's memory is bound to be a distortion of his past in accordance with his present interests." And the most faithful autobiography is likely to mirror less what a man was than what he has become. And then she starts talking about Joseph Smith dictating his his history. I love the way she writes. Yeah. Like she is so crisp and succinct. And oh, it's it's beautiful. Yeah, with that, I, I also learned just then. So she doesn't have access to the 32 or 35 account, it sounds like. Um, so she says that, and I didn't know this, but the one that's canonized in our scriptures, the 1838 account wasn't published to, to the general membership until 1842. Yeah. So it, it was written in 1838, but it wasn't published for the public until, till much later. I didn't know this either, but on the next page, 276, she says that they, so Oliver Cowdery runs off with the original manuscript. And then with the, with the other one, Joseph sticks it underneath the Nauvoo house and the last thing he says is, I have had trouble enough with this thing. And I just thought that was very interesting parting words for the Book of Mormon. Yeah, uh, it was an Ebenezer Robinson that heard him say that and reported it. And he's not wrong. It's It's been giving him a lot of grief, but I just thought that was really interesting. Yeah, and then he buries it under the cornerstone. And then it gets ruined. 
<laughs> I know. <laughs> this connects to what we said previously when he's in Liberty Jail. But from here on, everything that is new and the shifts in the theology are, are now only given to select individuals. They're secret and they're not taught to the general membership of the church. And this starting with the temple garment and the endowment ceremony. Brody talked about the original ceremony and she talked about the way the, um, the Masonic symbols of the compass in the square and then also the addition of the, the, the straight lines. She said that originally they would cut the line onto the individual and actually leave a scar on them. But the early, the early women who went through the ceremony protested and changed this practice. As early as we have the temple endowment, we have women protesting to change it for the better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine today people getting slit on their knee as they're going to get their endowment taken out? That would that would be so painful. I don't know that every account agrees that that's what happened, but there are there are a few to make note of that 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 had been said, and I think that's super interesting. One of the other things that she mentions in this chapter was the apologetic that I have heard my whole life about Joseph Smith needing to receive inspiration because the Masons had the truth um, already. Um, so that was in there. And, and Brody actually put that on the lips of Joseph Smith as him describing why he needed to be a Mason to receive this inspiration. Interestingly, and this is in the footnote on page 282, Wilford Woodruff he once frankly admitted, and this is Brody writing in the footnote, Wilford Woodruff, Wilford Woodruff once frankly admitted that some temple ordinances were first performed in the Masonic Temple in Nauvoo. And she cites the Temple Lot case, page 299, for that. Not only are they taking the Masonic rituals and adapting them for use in the Mormon Church, they're using the Masonic Temple to perform the early rituals. Oh, Wow. Yeah, also she says that she says the endowment ceremony the endowment ceremony was essentially fertility worship. And I thought that was interesting. Yeah, she describes it as fertility worship. She describes it looking at it through a more anthropological lens and saying this is the same sort of thing that happens in so many cultures throughout time. Mm -hmm. And she she talks about the possible impetus for this, the same being the same thing that drove the church to plural marriage. Yeah. Was there anything else in, in chapter 19 that you wanted to cover? Um, I just thought it was really interesting. I don't remember knowing this as a member or as an active member. The WW Phelps was excommunicated three different times. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't remember knowing that. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, that's a high score. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, love the, I love the sentence where she says, Nauvoo had become the center not only of the world, but also of the universe. I just love how she writes. At the end of each chapter, she gives such a, a beautiful, like, here are my main takeaways of this. And she talked about the theatricality of the Masonic rituals. Yeah, I thought that was interesting, too. And how that, you know, in her view, that resonated with Joseph Smith and, and was probably the reason why he adapted them. So chapter 20, this one's called In the Quiver of the Almighty. I didn't have a ton that I wrote down on this. I do have a couple of, of, of things that I want to discuss, but not like a, a ton of, of main points. I thought it was interesting because it harkened back to his time in Liberty Jail. They're trying to convict him of treason. And then he outright makes it clear, at least in, in these quotes from on uh, page 285, in order for them to receive you know, the, the totality of the restoration, they need to set up a theocracy. Perhaps when they're in Illinois, they weren't as overt with their ideas of setting up their own nation. But here, Justice Smith is explicitly saying, we're, we need to set up a theocracy. Yeah, I noted that as well. That was really interesting. This chapter, she also, she covered the Kinderhook plates. She covered the the museum that they had where they kept the mummies and the papyri and some of the, the visitors. She talked about an encounter with one of the visitors that came through town. She focused in, in chapter 20s on some of the theological shifts and kind of the development of Joseph Smith and his political acumen when he successfully leverages the different political parties to get them to start uh, vying for hit for the Mormons to vote one way or the other. I mentioned this earlier when we were talking about some of the um, ancient history and early scriptures. There are direct quotes of Joseph Smith 
referring to Genesis and, and some of the books of scripture as having been written by the hand of this person, by the hand of that person. She has a quote of, of him looking at the papyrus, talking to this visitor and saying, that was Moses's writing. That was Aaron's signature. And, and explicitly saying these claims about the ancient past that are falsifiable. And for me, that's, that's a huge nail in the coffin in his authority as being able to read and translate scripture. You know, we don't have the Book of Mormon and he didn't translate the Kinderhook plates, but he did look at this papyrus and he made claims about it that are falsifiable. The way I, the way I look at the interplay between faith, between faith and doubt, you know, or even having a secular view of something is if something is falsifiable, you can't have faith in it because you can go and verify whether it happened or didn't happen or whether it matches reality or doesn't match reality. To have faith in something that's falsifiable, it, it doesn't make sense to me. And so in my mind, the papyri and, and all of the claims around this are a huge nail in the coffin for him as an authority figure and be, being able to translate ancient scripture. Kind of going, going along the same lines, there's on page 290, I think his name is Henry Coswell. If I understand this all correctly, he's bringing him this Greek, this manuscript that's written in Greek. And Joseph says, it's not Greek, it's Egyptian. In fact, it's reformed Egyptian. He's, he turns to them and he's like, I'm exposing this trick. This is actually Greek. And Joseph's saying that it's Egyptian. But anyway, he says that the Mormon doctor said, sometimes Mr. Smith speaks as a prophet and sometimes as a mere man. If he gave a wrong opinion respecting the book, he spoke as a mere man. And I just thought that was very much what the apologists say today is that if the prophet gets something wrong, he's speaking as a man. Without any clear way to delineate when it's one or the other, in my mind, it's hard to trust anything. Right. So even, even as a believer, you know, let's, let's say you're going to accept that he's a prophet, he's receiving revelation, but sometimes he talks as a man and sometimes he doesn't. If there's no clear way to know when it's one or the other, how can you trust anything? Right. She did um, commend Joseph Smith with the way he handled the Kinderhook plates. So, you know, for all, all of those that claim that this is just a negative review of Joseph Smith's life, she actually praised him in his ability to catch on to what was happening with the Kinderhook plates, whether he knew exactly what was going on or not. He deftly maneuvered around that fraud that was specifically set up to catch him. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, she kind of says that he there was no other real way for him to respond but the way that he did. And he didn't give a translation, so that so that that helped him. And he didn't even, you know, he didn't make any claims about the language. He didn't say that it's reformed Egyptian or it's this or it's that. Um, and he was making lots of claims about being able to understand languages. <laughs> and she goes right after saying this, she, you know, he, he goes on this, this long spiel from a, um, a letter to James Arlington that they're calling the voice of truth in 1843, where he's going through and just like saying, this is this language and this is what it means. This is that language. And this is what it, what it means. And, and so he's not afraid to make those claims, but in the, in the instance where they're trying to catch him in fraud, he, he doesn't make a claim to know what language it was. Um, at the very beginning of this chapter, he, he goes into this, the Mormon means more good. And he goes into this huge explanation about, about Latin and Greek and the Dane and the German and the Dutch, just to make the point of it meaning more good. And I, and I didn't realize that that quote came directly from Joseph. I thought it was Gordon B. Hinckley. So chapter 21, chapter 21 is, uh, was called if a man entice a maid. And this one covered the inception and early practice of polygamy. I don't, I don't know exactly the date that she left off on because a lot of these events, at least from the last like three chapters, they coincide. So instead of telling it chronologically, she's picking a theme and kind of uh, following that theme through. So she's talking about uh, Masons and the temple worship and she goes through the Nauvoo period with Masons, the temple worship. And even, even when she's doing an overview of the Nauvoo period, she covers like a broad time of she covers a broad um, swath of time while they're in Nauvoo. And then, you know, she jumps into this. We're talking, you know, three chapters later, still on Nauvoo. She goes back to the beginning of their time in Nauvoo and moves forward in time again. So a lot of these events that we've discussed in these last couple chapters, they're not in chronological order. One of the, so in one of the early pamphlets that they wrote, and this pamphlet was, uh, so this is on page, page 299. This was um, 
a manuscript called The Peacemaker or Doctrines of the Millennium. And this is from Nauvoo, Illinois, 1842, page 1516, 29, and 31. This isn't in the footnote on that page. They're talking about their reasoning for implementing plural marriage. And they, they use a scripture in Exodus, if I'm not mistaken. A quote from Exodus it says, And if a man entice a maid that is not betrothed and lie with her, he shall surely endow her to be his wife. So they're talking about this idea of, of basically adultery and then turning it into a good thing by marrying the person. Man, where is that quote? Because she says it so well. That was on page 298. And I, I love the way she set this up. So she's talking about this as it not being a married person. And then she, very next page on 299, she says, such a, a wife must not be divorced, he said, for a divorced man is not known in the whole canon of scripture. But for her to continue performing the rituals of marriage without any love for her husband, which he labeled fornication in the, in the wife, was a gross sin. This is, this is direct quotes from their justification of implementing the plural marriage. This pamphlet was not well received and it was scrapped. So, so this was put out to the public and then retracted, basically. But it's kind of giving the framework for, for their reasoning to make these choices. But the, the idea that they put here, a divorced man is not known in the whole canon of scripture. It kind of stuck out to me because there's so many aspects of the Mormon faith even those that are practiced exclusively to Mormonism that aren't in the Mormon canon of faith, not even in the Book of Mormon and like barely in the Doctrine and Covenants. I mean, we have, we have full doctrines, you know, uh, the plurality of gods and, you know, owning your own planet and so many aspects of the belief system have no basis in scripture. Uh, yeah. They're using that same concept saying there's nothing written about this in scripture. So we can't, so divorce can't be a thing. Well, in the Joseph going along with plural marriage, he taught that, that Adam was a polygamist. He had multiple wives. He, he even taught about Lilith. And then he says that even Jesus was a polygamist and he had multiple wives. So those aren't in the scriptures or at least not in the King James version. Um, and he's using that. So and then very next page, they're talking about, uh, the justification and they're they're trying to explain away why Peter said that you won't be given, you know, there won't be marriage, you will be given in marriage in heaven and you will be, you know, taken in marriage in heaven. And so then they say that that's something that they have the keys for. Yeah. They're using the explanation to say divorce can't be a thing because it's not mentioned in scripture, but marriage has to be a thing, even though it is mentioned in scripture. They're explaining away in ways that would contradict the other argument that they're trying to make. So they're not in, it's, there's not an internal consistency with the logic that they're using. I also like that she points out that Joseph had to redefine the nature of sin and that he says in adultery, the sin, I, the sin of adultery lay not in the act itself, but in the subsequent desertion. So like in, so that the act itself doesn't matter, but whether or not he marries her in the end, that's what matters. I thought that was really interesting. She doesn't dive very deep. And honestly, the content of this chapter alone, the amount of stuff that could be discussed, I mean, whole podcasts have been done focusing, you know, your polygamy, where they just cover all of this information. There's so much here. Or the In Sacred Loneliness book, yeah. Or In Sacred Loneliness. There's there's lots of places where if this is the most interesting thing to you about this whole book, there's so many other resources that you can look into to, to learn about it. Because um, this is really just, it's a primer on the subject. She really doesn't go very deep into anything. She lists a couple. She talks about the fact that there's some doubt on how the exact number. And she talks about the people that were for certain his wives and, and this and that. One of the things that she made certain to mention, and, and this might have been because the rhetoric around her time of the apologetics was that, and I grew up listening to the same sort of thing, was that the polygamy was practiced because, you know, a lot of the women were destitute because of Hans Mill Massacre, or they immigrated from... United Kingdom and they didn't come with their spouse or, you know, divorce was too hard of a thing. And so they had to get into a plural marriage because um, frankly, at that time, divorce wasn't something that you could easily go and do. What Brody made explicit in this, and this is on, is on page 304, she says, for every woman who entered the system for reasons of security and a fragile security at that, there were a dozen for whom this necessity, this necessity did not arise. There was no need whatever for the attractive virgin to become a second, third, or thirteenth wife, since frontier areas always had a surplus of men. 
And what of the married women who gladly signed themselves and their children over to the prophet's keeping and glory for eternity, leaving their unwitting husbands to be wifeless and childless in the celestial kingdom? Was this a, a melancholy commentary on their own marriage state or a tribute to Joseph's charm? Or perhaps a smothered yearning for new experiences released now by an op- by opportunity masquerading as religious duty. New experiences. <laughs> oh, boy. It's interesting. I mean, so she's clearly showing her bias here, and, and it's it's clear that she doesn't believe this was inspired by God. But it's it's fascinating. I love the questions that she's asking here because she's she's trying to figure out like what was the motive of these women because she she can't jump into their heads. She doesn't know. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I thought on the page before that in three hundred three, it says that Joseph's brother Don Carlos fought polygamy before his death in eighteen forty one, and he says any man who will preach and practice spiritual wifery will go to hell, no matter if that is my brother, Joseph. And I think she doesn't say this here, but I think I remember from sacred loneliness that he does marry Don Carlos's wife. Yeah. Yeah. He takes his, he takes Don Carlos's wife after he passes away. His brother was super against it. The other story that I thought was interesting um, in this chapter was on 307, the Martha Brotherton story where Brigham Young is, uh, propositioning her to get into a plural marriage with him. Brody spelled it out pretty clearly that the majority of Joseph Smith's plural, plural wives were married women, with the exception of some that were unmarried. And and the married ones, sometimes, you know, he arranged a marriage to happen at the same time. And there were a lot of things going into it. But he kind of, he tactfully hid his plural marriages in a way that the other church leaders didn't do. And she was um, contrasting that practice to uh, Brigham Young. And in this Martha Brotherton story, where Brigham Young locks her in this this upstairs room, he's telling her about it. And she's like, ah, I'm not sure. I, I want to think about it for a minute. And they're like, well, you, he says, you have to decide now. And she's still kind of humming and hawing. They bring Joseph Smith in, still keep the, the door locked. Joseph Smith is trying to convince her. And they're trying to tell her to just say yes. And then two months down the road, if she's not okay with Brigham Young, she can marry Joseph Smith. And that was kind of like the out. She told them that she still needed to think about it and um, that she was just going to go away. Well, immediately her family get out of Dodge and they write down the whole story and they start publishing it. It was interesting because they showed Brody described Joseph Smith's efforts to cover, not cover up the whole thing, but to get in front of the PR and to spin a whole different story on the event. And that story is really hard to hear. And it was, I, I did not like what Joseph, how Joseph responded to her either. He says, come back in a month or two. And if you don't like it, I will make you free again. And if he turns you off, I will turn you on. Ugh. <laughs> nothing ventured, nothing gained. I, I don't know. Just, ugh. Yeah, it seems like a theme. There's been a lot of shows out recently that cover this subject. You know, the Keep Sweet, Pray and Obey. You've got the the Under the Banner of Heaven. It's kind of in the discourse. It's in the milieu of our our culture as a whole, at least in the United States, and not just within Mormonism, that there is a discussion around this whole practice of polygamy happening in our country. This last line here, when he says, In the Gentile world, the simple pronouncement of a few time-worn phrases by any justice of the peace was all that was necessary to transform a fornication into blessed matrimony. And I just like, wow. (laughs) I feel like there's a contrast that can be made of the way Joseph Smith describes being threatened by an angel with a sword to the way he's talking to these young girls. So he's saying, you know, and to some of those that were not immediately following, he, he described the story of, you know, the angel, the flaming sword. And this was, this is described in this chapter as well. Angel with the flaming sword being the only reason that he did it because he was going to lose his priesthood and it was you know, the angel was going to kill him. But then he, he, the way he's talking to this Martha, uh, to Martha Brotherton, is almost in contrast to that. The phrase that that you had quoted just a minute a minute ago, you know, if he doesn't do it for you, I'll turn you on. But yeah. If the motive were pl- were purely for salvation, why would that matter? Why would you need to bring up? that sort of a subject. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. In the in the story of, of Mary Elizabeth that you're talking about with the angel with the flaming sword, he tells her, he says, you were mine before this world was and all the devils in hell will not keep you from me. I don't know. Joseph just uses very strong language and he's very good. And I've said this before. He's very good at threats. I don't know. I, growing up, I always envisioned him as like a bumbling idiot that was 
you know, sort of the Moses type figure where he can't really speak publicly. So he needs his brother Aaron to talk for him. But that is not the case at all. He was eloquent. He knew how to convince people. He knew how to lead a conversation. He was charismatic. He was he was well-educated, if not a formal education. He knew how to speak in a way to influence people. And that's apparent throughout his whole life. Yeah, very much so. Do you have any any comments that you want to say on this chapter? I really like this last one. It was one of my favorites, too. Yeah, with every this one, it just made me want to go back and read Todd Compton's and Sacred Loneliness because she doesn't she just touches on everything just very lightly. And his book, Compton's book goes into much more detail and her him sending men on missions to marry their wives. And just that's just really hard. And just or I think they talked about the Relief Society and how Emma was trying to find out who he was with. And I can imagine there's other women also whose husbands are secretly living polygamy and they're all wanting to find out what's going on. And just, I don't know. I'm just sad for, for a lot of these saints. Yeah, it is really sad. Like Brigham Young villainized Emma in, after the, the schism that created the Brighamite branch of the, of the faith. And I think a lot of that rhetoric is around today in, in the Mormon faith, even you know, or the Latter-day Saint faith, even if it's not as overt as it was back then, where she's not discussed a ton. She's glossed over a lot. But honestly, like her character and her story is one of the saddest to me about church history. Yeah. And I just, I feel like she was, took the brunt of so much of, of Joseph Smith's life. She, it was the end of this chapter, if I'm not mistaken, chapter 21, or maybe it was the beginning of this chapter, but they're talking about, they have a quote of Emma's from later on in her life when she's, she's since remarried uh, major Bitterman. They're talking about whether or not she would have like what her motive was for marrying Joseph. But she says that she was coerced by Joseph and is it chase? Stole. Oh, stole. That's what it was. They absconded away and coerced by Joseph Smith and stole to get married. Yeah. And Brody says, but she was in the presence of her second husband when she said that. So it could have been influenced by that. The way it's depicted, the way that I had always been taught was that, you know, at least early on, there was some sort of fling, some sort of romance between the two of them. And perhaps, as Brody said, perhaps this is because she's with her her second husband that she's not going to go into those sort of details. But what she said in this later interview was that she was coerced into this marriage as well. I think the last time we chatted, I asked a similar question about, you know, which of his marriages were... Were not secret. And then this brings up another question is like, how many of his marriages were not coerced? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Dang. But also, like, how does that make a woman feel to be hidden away? You don't, you don't, you don't get a wedding. She didn't get a wedding. Emma, they, they just went off to the courthouse. Yeah. And I just, what you were saying about Brigham Young and he says in the Journal of Discourses that Joseph will have to go to hell to get her. It's just really sad. Just, yeah, the overall narrative when she's a victim and all this and her story is super sad and she loses all, most of her children. It's, it's one of those things where I, I've heard it expressed and I agree with this, but I, I don't personally believe in an afterlife, at least in the traditional sense, but I hope that there is some sort of retribution for these people because they, they live through some very hard lives. And I just hope that there's some sort of peace for them afterward. Yeah. I hope that too. That, that concludes part three, where we covered chapters 15 through 21. Did you have any any final thoughts that you wanted to say on this? I'm just excited to get to read the rest of it and to go through the appendices. I, I jumped ahead and I read a couple in there. And those those discussions, we might have to try and organize the way we talk about it. There's no way we're going to cover everything. But we might have to try and organize our discussion uh, maybe on themes because there's just so much in there. But it's going to be fascinating. I love I love Brody's writing style. This has just been a blast. Yes. Yeah, I love it. So thank you so much for coming on. This has been so much fun. Thank you. We'll bring you back in about another month. We'll go through part four Will that will uh, lead up to the end of his life. I don't know. I don't know where she ends the book. I don't know how far 
past his death that she covers. But I I don't know. We will we will get to that next time. Thank you so much for coming on. That was a blast. We'll bring you back. We'll do the last part of the bulk of the story, and then we'll get together one more time to discuss the appendices. Thank you so much. I have loved doing this. This is so fun for me. Yeah, it's been a blast. That concluded my third chat with Julia on this, on our book review of No Man Knows My History. The subject matter today was really delicate. I have been thoroughly enjoying these conversations, and I'm excited to get to part four and conclude this book, and then move on to the appendices, where we'll pick and choose some of our favorite bits and uh, try and stick to some, some themes. Wherever you find yourself out there, walking the dog, making dinner for this evening, I hope that you have an excellent day. <laughs>